loosen the tie first. It's only 100 outside. Good Lord. All right, y'all ready? Let's do this. I'm John Kelly. I'm a grateful recovered alcoholic. And my sobriety date is September the 4th, 1999. And for that, I'm very, very grateful. And, you know, I'm not one of these dudes that, like, walk around. Well, well, that's just going to make noise. Um, not one of these guys that walk around and go, oh, I got me a little good job. God is so grateful. I got me a pretty little girlfriend. God is so grateful. I got me a new car. God is so grateful. God don't want to hear that crap from me. God wants to see me in action. So what better way for me to show the God of my understanding, my gratitude, is to get off my rear end and take this program to somebody who was dying just like I was. That's how I show God my gratitude. And for that, I am free. And that is awesome. Because I didn't look like this when I got here. <laughs> I didn't look like this when I got here, man. You know, you old people know this. And I, I'm, I'm old. I'm old, okay? Not judging, all right? I ain't judging. But you old people get, remember, remember that actor Nick Nolte a few years ago, a bunch of years ago when he had, he got a DWI or his third one and he had that crazy ass picture on TV and his hair's awesome. Yeah, I made him look good. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, 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 and tell you the truth, it did not, I did not start out that way. I did not start out that way. Um, you know, growing up, I was born in Lubbock. At the time when I was born in Lubbock, I was the biggest baby born in West Texas Hospital. That was a big one. I had a girlfriend that was at my grandma's house. We were dating. They loved, my grandma loved this girl to death. And she was, I don't know why my, my grandma painted. And she's painted, but she had some, some, some knickknacks out in, the, in the, her painting room. It was a pair of those little white booties that little babies used to wear back in the day, the hard white leather. And Jean, I remember Jeanette looking at him. She's like, oh, my God, whose are those? And my grandma's like, that's John's. She goes, oh, my God, they're so cute. Is he like one? She goes, oh, no, that was newborn. <laughs> and Jeanette was like going, uh-uh, no way, dude. So we didn't last that long. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> probably for some other reasons, which you'll catch on later on. So I'm the first kid. I was the first grandkid on both sides of the family. There's two sets of twins below me. They bond and stuff. I'm like the test kid, right? And I mean, trust me, they, they would have a, if I was a kid today, I, there's no telling what they'd do to me, but I was a pretty cool little kid. But I, you know, my, my mama, they, they treated me like a king. And my grandparents on both sides, I had the best shoes, the best clothes. I played every sport. I was damn good at all of them. I skateboarded, had a big ramp in my backyard. I played tennis. And just all, all that's on the out, made straight A's in school. And, and I mean, on the outside, I looked like a pretty sharp kid. On the inside, I got this little internal voice going, you suck. <laughs> right? And that don't make me an alcoholic. That's just the way I grew up, right? And there were some drinkers on the Kelly side of the family. My dad's a drinker. I don't know if he's an alcoholic. We're not, we're kind of like estranged or whatever. I've made amends and all that stuff. But he left me and my mom when I was like two. But, um, you know, I was always warned, like Bill, for Bill forgot the, the warnings and strong prejudices of his people concerning drink. So I did that too, right? Because my mama would say, don't drink like your dad or don't be like Uncle Melvin. And Uncle Melvin had racehorses and stuff out here in West Texas and played polo and drank himself to death and bled out on the front porch, with, uh, you know, from a gastric hemorrhage, right? Don't be like Uncle Melvin, right? My mama got remarried. Stepdad was cool. No drinking in my immediate house. I mean, it's just, I'm just a normal kid growing up, except I'm like, we moved around a lot, and I always felt like I didn't fit, you know? I just didn't belong. I was always the new kid and all that stuff. And that's just how I grew up. Don't make me an alcoholic. That's just, that's just the way I roll, right? And I, we lived in Miami, Florida at the time. I'm 15 years old. I'm at a tennis camp. I'm staying over for another two weeks or whatever. And there, me, another little boy, 15 and three older women they were like 17 <laughs> and so we had a free Saturday night and then a whole bunch of other people from all over the world were coming and we had more tennis camp we had a free night and they had taken us around the little town and 
and we get back to the hotel and the girls came up with the idea that it would be great if, if we had some beer. Now, I don't know where this courage came from, but I immediately rose to the occasion and said, we'll get the beer. Now, never mind, I don't have a vehicle, ID, or anything, so we ran, and it was, you know, the typical story, two miles uphill both ways to this convenience store. I get a case of Budweiser, put it on the counter. The guy looks at me like my head's on fire, and I immediately rose to the occasion again and told him, you know, we got a couple girls back at the hotel at the tennis camp, and but he said, meet me out back. And I met him out back. He gave me the case of Budweiser. I gave him the $20 bill, and I ran the Budweiser all the way back to the hotel, put it in the bathtub, put it on ice, called the chicks, and they showed up. <laughs> and we started drinking that Budweiser. And I ain't a Budweiser fan, but we started drinking that Budweiser with, with these people from all over the country, these five people. And, and I don't know if it was the first Budweiser or the second Budweiser, but suddenly I had arrived suddenly it all made sense suddenly questions to answer our answers to questions that hadn't even been asked I got all of a sudden instead of being shy and all this stuff I was hip slick cool those chicks wanted me you know what I mean it was magical the last thing I remember that night was seeing a pair of little 17 year old boobies and that was it And I couldn't wait to do that again, you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and, and look, I know I've met a lot of knuckleheads. I know Jeff, you know. <laughs> I know Jeff. And so I, I know a lot of you knuckleheads got in trouble early on. From the time I was 17 till I was about 26, I had like zero repercussions. From the time I was 17 to the time I was 26, alcohol was the best thing in my life. It worked. It made a good day better. It made a crappy day tolerable. It worked no matter what. And then, as it does, it progresses, and then the problems start to pile up, right? And the stuff starts to happen. And fast forward to 1988. It's in the summer. I'm in between universities. I started out in California, end up in Baylor. Now I'm going to tech. Just I'm chasing. I'm just always chasing something, right? Oh, I got to go here. I got to get that girl. I got to, you know, and I'll, and I'll work my tail off to get whatever it is. And then I get it, and it's like, it ain't all that. So here I am. I'm in between colleges. I'm, I'm broken up with this girlfriend and everything. I'm drinking too much. I'm working at a bar. It's just crazy. And I have this epiphany because my aunt, my mom's sister, Helen, who's passed away, she had gone to treatment, right? And she was in A&A and all this stuff. And I have this epiphany this summer during the Olympics that, Maybe I need AA. So I called my sainted mama, told her I thought I had a problem, and she asked me to rush over to the house and she would help. And I mean, you would have thought I won Powerball, you know? She was so happy, and then she worked for like two days or whatever to try to get me covered on insurance or whatever, and I went to my first treatment center. And it was one of those fancy treatment centers, you know, like the $30,000 big book treatment centers and basketball courts and co-ed and chicks still all had their teeth. And <laughs> it was a good treatment center. It was a good treatment center. <laughs> and that was my first introduction to Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, they get the white van and they take you to meetings and they have some speakers come into the thing. And I remember it was like... It was like I was coming out of detox there, and I, I, at the time I was like 26 years old, I think, or 25, and, and the, my roommate at this place, he was like 47 or so. And it was like his day in treatment to tell the, us clients in treatment his little sordid tale on how he got to the treatment center. And I remember sitting there at 26 years old listening to this guy's story thinking, dang, this guy's got a problem. <laughs> you know? This guy is tore up, right? Little did I know that 11 years later, my story makes him look like a Girl Scout. You know what I'm saying? Because it's a progressive illness. And what I thought was bad in 1988 got incrementally and exponentially worse by the end of my drinking. 
and I got out of there. I fared forth in high hope. And I don't know how y'all do meetings here in meeting. I've been to a couple. But in Dallas, we back in the day, it was big on discussion meetings. And this one that I went to was in North Dallas. It was kind of fancy pants. All the beautiful people went. And we'd go there. It'd be like 100 people there, 200 people there on a, at a 6 o'clock meeting. And everybody's dressed to the nines and everything. And you sit around, and the chairperson there, and he opens the meeting. And then he picks out a topic they're going to talk about. And then he cruelly and maliciously points to people around the room to share and I hate that because I don't like talking in front of people and it made me uncomfortable and I didn't stick and you know and I just was bouncing around AA meetings all over the place and I just never could stick then I got a job at Hard Rock Cafe and I was doing really well at that I was one of the last guys hired by the founder of Hard Rock Cafe and that did really really great I got bumped up to management getting ready to travel the world I can't stop drinking I got buddies and bands. I got bartenders that are buddies. Everybody's seemingly doing the same thing. But at whatever time we go to home, I'm still drinking when I get home, and I cannot stop. I can't do it. And they asked me to leave. I kind of volunteered. I mean, I should. I mean, I could have, you know, probably gone to treatment. But I just like I'll show them, and I kicked. Right? I'm like, all right, you fired me. All right, I'll show you SOP. I kicked and I stopped drinking and I mean I was running 10, 12, 15 miles a day doing push-ups, reading Tony Robbins books, Way of the Peaceful Warrior, doing Tai Chi and shit. I mean <laughs> I'm going to start my own restaurant. I'll show these other people, I'll show these people that they they passed up on JK here. And I got a like it's like before I had a computer and everything and I'm doing a business plan. I find a place in, in Deep Ellum to open up a restaurant. It's going to be a rock and roll sushi bar. I got, I got all my buddies are in bank. I got it all going on, man. It's, I got a bank ready to back me. I mean, it's all ready to go. Two days. Two days before I sign on the dotted line. Going over some of my notes. Not a cloud in the sky. The end of a perfect day. Getting ready to buy my own restaurant. A thought crosses my mind that a shot of Sambuca would be nice. And there had been a bottle of Sambuca in my freezer for like that previous six months or whatever, however, three months or however long this had taken. And I went over there and cracked the lid and poured me a big old thick glass of Sambuca. Chugged that down. I don't know about y'all. But the only thing one drink has ever proved to me is that the next one and the next one are going to be awesome. And I drank the entire bottle of Sambuca. I called a buddy who owned the liquor store up the road. They brought me some more after they closed at 9. I went on a 7 or 8 day bender. Didn't get the bank loan. Didn't get the restaurant. And ended up in Puerto Rico. story but that's where I ended up <laughs> I had a good buddy that lived there and I, I decided he'd let me we're like we're like brothers you know and, and um, he didn't know how bad I was and I got to Puerto Rico and I don't know if you've ever been to Puerto Rico but the women are gorgeous and the rum is very very cheap and outside issues are very very cheap and pure and um, I was off. I was off the rails. And I'm drinking a couple bottles of rum every day. And, I mean, I, I have nothing to keep me in check. I don't, I'm not working. I'm just staying out on the beach, rolling around old San Juan. I mean, it was full throttle. And I knew it was getting on my buddy's nerves. And, and, um, and I, I thought, you know, I, I don't want to wear out my welcome here. And he was going on a little couple day vacation with his girlfriend to somewhere else St. Thomas or something and I said hey just let you know you guys are going to the airport when you guys get back I'll be I'm, I'm not drinking I'm done I'm over I gotta get serious and I kicked and I stopped it was awful it was on a Sunday oh my god it was terrible terrible Monday could not keep an ounce of water down y'all know that feel right shake you know how we walk over to talk Hey, how you doing? You know, your hands flying around and everything. I, I figured out that's why God invented straws, because when you're shaking like that, you can't drink. So you got the straw, and you just drink off the table. But um, 
by Wednesday, I could start like keeping some Gatorade down and some coconut juice and all that stuff. And I, I thought I'd turn the corner. And I remember sitting in this apartment that we lived in in Old San Juan. You could hear the waves crashing on the beach on the rocks below. I mean, it's just awesome. I got the music turned down real low. I'm like reading the Rolling Stone magazine. And I start to hear some other music. And I start to hear the voices. And I didn't know what was going on at the time, but that was my first trip through delirium tremens. It lasted that Wednesday until like Saturday morning. There was people that knew me. They gave me wide berth because they knew me in old San Juan as the, the crazy gringo. And, um, but um, they said that I was like wandering around old San Juan with flip-flops and some beat-up ratty Nike swim trunks and a butcher knife just kind of walking around old San Juan. <laughs> yeah, nice, huh? Oh, I forgot to tell my kid. My kid's here. Earplugs, earplugs. <laughs> so I make it to this, somehow, I looked up Alcoholics Anonymous. I make it to this little meeting, and in, 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 um, in, it's called Condado. It's across the little bridge from old San Juan into Condado. The, the Hilton Hotel is there. It's a meeting place that's been there since like the 1950s. Bill Wilson had been there back in the day. And I made it to this place. This guy, the late, great Andy Aponte, took me under his wing. And he was like, okay, so going back to my experience in AA, my experience in AA is a bunch of sad sack, you know what, sitting around the table holding it for dear life. I'm just glad to be sober today, right? There's no joy. There's no nothing hanging on for dear life. That is my thing. And so I can go. Meeting makers make it 90 meetings in 90 days. Keep coming back and do all that happy horse crap, right? And I'll go to the meetings, and I will be diligent about going to the meetings. And by, by day 30, I am, I want out. That was my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous initially. And I meet this dude in San Juan, and Andy is on fire. He is lit, man. And he's sitting me down on the beach, and we're reading through the big book. And it's the first time I ever got, got any hope or whatever. And this guy agrees to be my sponsor, and he's taking me through the steps. Now, he doesn't do it the way that we did at Primary Purpose, but he's doing the job, right? And I'm making a beginning, right? And I got some hope, and I'm going to the meeting, and I'm, it's all good. I kid you not, I'm going to get a two-month chip. He calls me that day. Are you coming tonight? It's birthday night. I'm like, absolutely, dude. He goes, well, you're getting your chip tonight, and after after the thing, we're all going to go out to dinner. And he goes, I know you don't have any money or whatever, but I'm good. it's on me. All right? This is going to be great. I'm like, dude, I'm getting in the shower, and I'm on the way. I kid you not, walking down the streets of old San Juan, not a cloud on the sky. I mean, going to the deal. Mira, JK. <laughs> And it's two chicks I know, and they're very talented. They're very acrobatic-like. <laughs> and they, they're good at twirling around stuff. Like. And I just stopped to say hello. And the next thing you know, I'm on like a three, four, five-day binge. My buddy's got to call my mama back in Texas and like, and I didn't know this till after the fact, but my buddy had called her and said, you, Martha, you got to get him off this island. He's going to die here. And so my mama sends him the money for a plane ticket. She didn't trust me. And I fly back to Texas. Now, here I am, a person who's used to nice clothes, nice shoes, pretty girlfriends, nice cars, all this stuff. And I get back to Texas, and I'm 30-something years old. Now I'm living at my mama's house, spending my mama's money, driving my mama's car. I don't got any of my friends left. And she was up north of Dallas, outside of Denton. And um, I'm trying to get sober again. And I try a couple little places here and there, and that doesn't really work out. I end up staying at one of my uncle's house in Plano, Texas, and trying to stay sober there. I mean, that's I, that one stretch in 90 meetings in 90 days with this group, I did 270 meetings in 90 days. I went to the noon, the 6, and the 8. Day 91, I'm looking for a sniper perch and a rifle because <laughs> this ain't working. <laughs> this ain't working. So needless to say, I just keep going in and out, in and out, in and out. I'm getting worse and worse and worse. Now we're ending up in some hospitals here and there. I don't know if 
if it was, I can't remember, 96, 97, I don't know, I'm back from Puerto Rico. I end up in another treatment center. This time it's not a nice one. It's a place in Dallas called Homeward Bound. It's state run. It's, you know, it's for indigent street people. You know what I'm saying? And um, I made it through, I made it through there the first time, 90 days, and I drank within a week when I got out. And I'm like, so I, so I lived at this little halfway house. I didn't want my mama to bail me. My mom, my mom was always my ace in the hole. If I needed money, I could call my mom. If I needed a car, I could get a car. If I needed this. And, and somehow, somewhere along the line, somebody got in touch with my mom and told her. And I, because I remember one time I was talking to her, I was drunk. And she said, you know, John Kelly, you're my baby. We grew up together. But if you have, if you have to keep drinking, you got to do it without us. And she hung up. living at this halfway house I'm not gonna I'm gonna take the high road I'm not gonna get any handouts or everything and I got a little job and I'm making money I'm like the only one at the halfway house that had a sponsor and got a job and all that stuff and I got a couple grand saved up in the bank and now I'm thinking I gotta get out of this halfway house I gotta get one of my own place so on a beautiful spring day during March madness I get up early on a Sunday on a Sunday during the basketball tournament got my little my brackets in my back pocket, hop the bus to the train, to the bus, get down to Lower Greenville in Dallas, start calling from Dallas Observer Magazine, it was before I had a cell phone, started calling these places that were for rent, these little garage apartments or little studios and all that stuff. I stopped into a place who I'd been going to for years <laughs> called, called Milo's. I stop in to have some tacos and a Coke. And as I'm having tacos and a Coke and checking out my brackets, there's a tap on my shoulder. I look around. It's a buddy of mine that I used to work with at Hard Rock Cafe. And he's like, I heard you died in Puerto Rico. And I'm like, I'm not dead. <laughs> and so we talked for a little bit, and he walked off. And a minute or two later, he comes back with a cold mug of beer and a big old rocks glass full of rumple mix. And there was no fight. It was not like. Jim at the, you know, what he was he said, oh, oh well, I can't screw it up. But anyway, I didn't think, there was no premeditation. I just drank it. And I drank a whole lot more. And I got buddies that owned bars up all up and down Lower Greenville. And the next thing you know, I came to Parkland Hospital, handcuffed to a bed, public intox, felony possession, and assault of a police officer. And I was just out looking for an apartment. And I swore in loose there that day I would never, ever do it again. I prayed, I prayed, I prayed. I had money. I know lawyers. I'll do anything, God, if you get me out of this, I will friggin' do anything. And by the time I bonded out on Monday, of loose there and they gave me my stuff back. I walked down the steps of loose there directly across the street to the liquor store because I got a drink bottle on me. I have to. And it gets just, it's just tailspins from that. You know, I end up in Homeward Bound one more time. I literally almost, I mean, I coded in Homeward Bound. I'd almost die in detox. I'd rip the lining underneath my tongue. It was awful. Remember, I told them I would stay for the 30-day program, and it's on a Friday night. I'm in scrubs. They're going out for a smoke break or something, so there's some guys that were already there. They were holding me up because I can't walk, and I'm shaking and violently. I mean, I'm dying. And by the time they get me out there, it's already over, right? And they're like, gentlemen, we got to go back upstairs. It's time for a group. And I remember sitting on the elevator, and there's a guy that I met who we're still friends today, Kurt Kanewitz. I had hey, Kurt, what kind of group do you have on Friday night? He's like, oh, we got an AA meeting. And I was like, crap. Just friggin' kill me. AA sucks. <laughs> and I got up to this little thing, and they propped me up in the corner of this, of, this, of this room so I couldn't fall out of my chair. And in walks Cliff Bishop and Myers Raymer from Primary Purpose Group. And Myers gets up there with his little big book, and you know how, if you know Myers, he's up there frothing and blah, blah, and I'm just like, whoa. 
I've never heard this stuff. Then he passes it off to this little old man, Cliff Bishop. He's like, like 90 years old. The old man never opens his book, just starts going, go to page this, go to page that. And I'm just like blown away. I have never heard this crap before. And I'm like, and like in my feeble condition after the meeting, I go up to the old man and I'm like, oh my God, I've never heard that before. I got to have help. He had one of his protégés there, Matthew. Matthew takes me under his wings and man, we start. And I got like three weeks in Homeward Bound and Matthew's coming up on the weekends. I got some hope. I get out. I'm staying at my brother James's apartment up in North Dallas and I'm making a good beginning. I'm going to primary purpose group. I'm doing it. I'm doing it. I did a four-step and all this stuff. But man, I can't get out of my own way, man. I am thousands of dollars in debt. I don't have Debbie back. I don't have any friends. I got a crappy job in the design district. I have a crappy car. It's not going for me. I can't get out of my own way. And I remember being there on the Thursday night, primary purpose. I know I'm going to drink. I know. All I got to do is go up to Matthew or Cliff or Myers and pull them aside and say, dude, I need help. My ego and my arrogance will kill me. Because I tell everybody I'm doing fine. And we did our stupid little big book study, and I remember saying the Lord's Prayer, putting up a few chairs. We, our meetings are over at 8.30. And so I got in my beater of a car, and I hauled ass to Walnut Hill. That's the closest liquor store. And I get me a bottle of vodka. And I don't mess around with pints. I don't mess around with fists. I get the 1.75s of Skull Vodka, pop out that little governor they got in the top. <laughs> we don't got to mix it with nothing. It comes in its own container, and you drink. And that was the last time they saw me until September of 99. And I drank, and I drank. January and February of 1999, I'm in six emergency rooms alcohol related. I am kicked out and banned from Parkland Hospital. They got to take anybody. Not me. Not me. Any, well, they may take me today. Maybe they, I'm grandfathered in. But back then, no. <laughs> so I had learned to work Parkland. I had learned when I'm detoxing or I'm in bad shape, I could go to Parkland and go through the emergency line and work them for some Librium or for all that stuff. And then you drink on top of that, right? So I'm doing that, but I got wise this time, and so I'd emptied out an Avion bottle of water and filled it up with full of vodka, and then when I checked in, I also told them, my chest kind of hurts, chest pains, that's like front of the line shit, and they get me in the back, I'm hooked up to IVs, and the doc catches me drinking the vodka. He was not impressed. Matter of fact, he walked me down to the pharmacy, wrote a script for some Librium to tell me, he literally told me, do not ever come back. The police will be called. You'll be dead within a year. And I start trying, because my ego and my arrogance, I don't go back to primary purpose, so I'm going to this group and that group and getting desire chips and wearing out my, I mean, they're not even clapping anymore when I get a desire chip. They're just like, it's like disdain. It's like, I think he's been drinking again. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, and I'm in my head, I'm like, I don't want to do it anymore. I can't do it anymore. And every day I pray, God, don't let it happen again today, but I got to drink no matter what. And so somehow I got this little job together, and I'm working in the design district. I'm living in Oak Cliff, just got to cross the bridge into the design district. And I'd saved somehow, I'd saved a little bit, bit of money, and I got this little garage apartment in Kessler Park, which is a nice, kind of fancy part of town. And, and I got this nice little garage apartment to live in, had a, a, an old sofa that a client had given me, a clock radio, my work clothes. That was, that was me, 35 years old, winter. And I remember, so that was like in July of 1999. And, and I was drinking, and I, I don't know about y'all, but weekends were really, really rough, and I'd overshoot the mark on Sundays, and it's like Monday, me working is pretty iffy. But my boss kind of took pity on me, and I remember I called in on this particular Monday, and I'm like, man, I think I got food poisoning. He's like, again? 
like eating out of dumpsters, <laughs> you know. Um, and so I'm like trying to taper all day Monday on the vodka that I have, and I'm a really bad taper, and I overshoot the mark. I overshoot the mark, and I'm hungover again the next day, and my hangovers are really bad, and I got a drink on top, so I called in sick on that Tuesday, and I'm trying to taper all day, and I overshoot it again, and now I'm calling in sick on Monday or Wednesday, and he starts giving me the business over the phone, and I just let him have it, you know, and I'm just like, you know what, F you. F your little company. I don't friggin' care. Later. And that was the first cell phone I had just gotten it a couple weeks before. I remember hanging up my phone and throwing it on the kitchen floor. And I remember hitting my knees and just crying. And I started this pitiful, alcoholic plea to God. All full of self-pity and righteousness. <laughs> I mean, I'm... I don't know what I was saying, but I was saying crap like, you know, God, I've tried to get sober forever and ever, and I've gone to AA, and it sucks, and it doesn't work for me. Maybe it works for other people. I'm cool with that. I know from my medical records, Jesus, that I'm this close to dying. Make it happen. Make it happen. And the only time I left that garage apartment until Labor Day weekend was to get more vodka. And I would go down to Industrial Boulevard and I would buy as many of those big old plastic jugs of skull vodka as I could carry in the condition that I was at, go back to my house, lock the door, open the lid, and guzzle as fast as I can, hoping to die. My family ain't calling me. I'm just drinking. And I keep coming too, and I keep going back that just goes on and on. And on Friday of Labor Day weekend, 1999, I wake up and I'm covered in blood and I haven't been stabbed. That's just me. That's just me throwing up blood. My house smells like an animal has died in it. And that's just me dying of alcoholism. And I look around at all these, all these vodka bottles and then I had this crystal clear thought, I don't want to die drunk. I don't know what to do. So apparently I called Matthew, my old sponsor. I don't remember that call. Then I called my brother Joel. Now my brother Joel is one of the twins. He's in Fort Worth at seminary, get his, his master's in theology. Dig. My sister's married to a preacher. My other brother is a preacher. There's like God all up in my house, right? <laughs> so my brother Joel says he'll come get me because I'm done. I mean, they're all done with me. But he says he'll come get me. So, you know, if you're the oldest, if you're, you, or if you're the youngest, you know what you probably look like. You, you looked up to your older siblings, right? I'm the older brother. I taught him how to play sports. I taught him how to do this, taught him how to do that, right? They looked up to me. And on that day, he gets to walk in, and I'm like 30 or 40 pounds underweight. I'm dying. I smell. I am unwholesome, unlovable. That's what he gets to walk in on. And he's like, dude, we got to get you to the hospital. And I'm like, dude, I can't go to the hospital. He's like, you can go to Parkland. They'll take anybody. I'm like, <laughs> I said, it's a long story. I don't, I don't remember any of this. He tell, he'll tell you, but I apparently told him it's a long story. They won't take me. He's like, well, what do I do? And I said, well, you just got to watch me. And if I start to go into seizures or hallucinations, just call the ambulance and we'll let them take me and do whatever they want. And I kicked that weekend. Now, you can die from detoxing as, as much alcohol as I drink, right? So obviously I didn't die. I don't. That's why they have medical detox so you can taper, so you don't die from delirium trips because your heart blows up, right? So I don't recommend this to anybody. I just kicked. And it was friggin' awful. Uh, I tried to make a, actually tried to make a run for it on Saturday night. He had a, I was staying in the guest house behind his house, and I, in, in Camp Bowie, it was like right there. And I knew there was a liquor store, like a block away, right? And I'm telling like, dude, I'm gonna go try to go to bed. And I had like, I mean, I think I had literally like $21 in my in my on my debit card. And I'm thinking, I'm gonna go out the back way, go to Camp Bowie. I need some vodka, right? And I get to the, his back fence, it was locked, but the back fence was, I don't know, it was like maybe 10 feet high. It might as well have been 100. 
because I could barely walk. <laughs> and so anyway, it, it was an awful, awful weekend. It was terrible. I was hurting. I'd gotten a voicemail from the boss that I had so shockingly treated a few weeks before, left me this long voicemail message, said, hey, there's a project came in in your absence, and you're really the only guy that we have that could pull this off. The owners are in Europe, so would you be so kind to come in on Tuesday after Labor Day and work this project out? It'll probably take you about two weeks, and then we will pay you, pay you in cash, and then we really don't want to see you again. And since I was broke, I was like, hey, this works out good. And so on Tuesday, third day of detox, I'm shaking out vodka. My body's shaking and everything. I go to this job. My brain is screaming for vodka, screaming. My brain's telling me, dude, we're going to die. You've been through this before. We're going to die. And I'm working this. I'm sweating out all these toxins and stuff. Matthew, my sponsor at the time, was calling me a couple times during the day. Finally, like about 5.30, he got back. I'm getting ready to leave. He calls me. And I'm like, dude, I'm, I answered the phone. I'm like a little jumpy now. I'm going to the meeting, dude. He's like, no, no, no. He goes, I'm just calling to let you know. Rachel's having a baby. We're on the way to the hospital. See Clef. I'm like, okay. And, and Matthew said, I said, well, I'm going to go home and take a shower. He says, don't go home. Just get a big gulp. Do something. Just go straight to the meeting. See Clef. Click. Okay. So I remember getting a big gulp and something, and I go to the meeting. Cliff's the old man. And I walk into primary purpose, and he's on the other side of the, the auditorium there in the church and everything, and he sees me. I'm in my work clothes. I smell, you know, that alcohol smell, that detox smell, that lovely gutter smell. That's what I smell like. My brain's screaming for vodka. Cliff sees me at the other side of the church, makes a beeline for me. He comes up and gives me a hug. And also found out that he was smelling me because he likes the smell of drunks. He does. <laughs> God rest his soul. He passed away a few years ago. And I said, well, I got to talk to you. And he looked at me over the top of his glasses like your grandpa does when he means business. What the hell can I do for you? And I was trying to keep it together. And by then I started crying again. And I'm like, I don't want to die drunk. And he said, follow me. We went to this other little room outside the meeting room, and we sat down, and then we had a few minutes before the meeting started that night. And in that short amount of time, 10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever it was, the miracle of Alcoholics Anonymous takes place in my life because he sits me down, and we look eyeball to eyeball, and he starts talking to me, and he starts asking me some questions, and he starts telling me some stuff about him, and we start identifying with each other, and he starts asking me questions, asking me this, telling me about him. And he gets me right where he needs to get me. And by then, I'm snotting and crying and everything. And he says, are you a real alcoholic? And I just lost it. I'm like, yes, sir, I'm a real alcoholic. He says, you're screwed. And he didn't use that word. He said, you're screwed. He said, look at you, dude. You're damn near dead. Yes, sir. He says, do you believe it works for me? I said, well, I know it works for me. Does it work for Myers and Dara and Ed and all those knuckleheads out there in that meeting room getting set up? He said, well, yes, sir. Damn right it does, John Kelly. If it didn't work, they'd be playing bingo in this church tonight. <laughs> he said, how well is your way working? I said, it's not working. And he said, excellent. I am now your sponsor. And I was like, crap. <laughs> I got Matthew, this nice guy, like my age and shit, and I got, I got this guy. He goes, I'm now your sponsor. And you're going to read what I tell you to read, go where I tell you to go, do what I tell you to do, which is right in this book. And the minute you balk, go away. There's 1,500 other meetings going on in Dallas. I'm sure you can find one that will do it your way. I said, yes, sir. He says, come on, let's go get your chip. And as we got up, he gave me a hug, and we're walking out the room. He said, he said, when you get home tonight, I need you to do me a favor. When you get home tonight and you get cleaned up and you get ready for bed, I need you to re start reading a little bit in the big book before I, you know, you 
may have some trouble sleeping. I think you'll be fine, but start reading the doctor's opinion. When you get through that, you go read through Bill's story. And you call me tomorrow morning. I said, yes, sir. He said, well, when you get ready to go to bed, I need you to get on your knees. You look up at your ceiling, and you tell God, thank you for another chance. Yes, sir. So we went out there, and I got my last desire chance. Little did I know I had just done steps one and step two. Step one, I'm screwed. Step two, I hope I'll work for you. I'll work for me. Why? Because I'm screwed in step one. Moving on. <laughs> I got my last little desire chip. I got, I got home. I called my mama, my sainted mama, and, and she, she had heard about Cliff before and everything. And, did she, and she, But she knew, my, she knew of my other sponsor, Matthew, and I, she had called me and left me. And so anyway, I called her. And um, plenty of time. So I call. I, I called her, and she's like, "Did you make it?" I made it to the meeting. Did you see Matthew? I'm like, "Well, Matthew wasn't there." Like her hopes fell. I said, "It's okay. It's okay. Matthew's wife's having a baby. I got a new sponsor." And she goes, "Well, who's your new sponsor?" And I said, "Cliff Fisher." And she starts crying. And I said, "Well, why are you crying?" She says, "Because I've been praying." And I said, well, listen, I've got some reading to do. The little old man scares me a little bit. And I've got to pray to my ceiling. Don't ask. I'll call you tomorrow. And I, and I read my stuff in the big book, and I remember getting on my knees and looking at my ceiling and just telling God, thank you for giving me another chance. And I remember laying down on that dirty sofa that client had do donated to me, and I laid down to go to sleep. And I remember laying there for a few minutes, and I don't know where this thought came, but as my, you know, your thoughts go through your head as you're trying to sleep, I have this crystal clear thought of like, dude, we ain't got to drink no more. And I don't know where that came from. And I get up the next day, and I call the old man. We talk about what I read. He gave me some more stuff to read. And he said, hey, by the way, I'm speaking at Casa Group tonight at 7 o'clock. Be there at 645. I get there. He doesn't even talk to me because he's talking to his old-timer buddies. I listen to him speak again. And we meet in the parking lot afterwards. We go over Chapter 2, right? And we talk about that for 45 minutes or whatever, right? So now I'm at Thursday night. It's my second night at Primary Purpose Group. Big book study all the time there, right? So we're on there, got all these little big book thumpers in there. It was small at the time. It was probably like 15, 20 people there, right? Got my new crisp minted big book, and we happen to be on page 46, right? And they're reading the stuff. They read the whole page, and they're commenting on this, right? It says, we found that as soon as we're able to lay aside prejudice and express even a willingness to believe in a power greater than ourselves, we commence to get results even though it's impossible for us to fully, find, fully define or comprehend that power, which is God. Now, I'm underlining it. Cliff and Myers and everybody's talking about it. My buddy Kurt's sitting there. He's been sober for a year from Homeward Bound, right? He's sitting there next to me, and all of a sudden it clicked. I'm like, holy crap, this stuff is real. That Saturday, that Saturday, I go over to the old man's house. We went over steps one, two, and three, and we would get ready for my third step prayer. We got ready for that, and he said, follow me. I, oh, he asked me, he goes, ready to do your third step prayer? I said, I'll do anything. He goes, we'll see about that. Follow me. <laughs> so we walk on this other part of the house. He said it was a prayer bench. looked like a coffee table in the living room where nobody goes, but who cares? So we get on our knees. I'm still shaking out vodka, right? I still vibrate. I'm vibrating for two weeks after I, but so here I am, like five days sober. We're on our knees. The book is open to page 63. Of course, you can say it out of your own words. You can use your own, you know, read it out of the book, say your own words, how you want to do it. He goes, before you do your third set prayer, John Kelly, I'm going to say a prayer and make sure God's with us. So here we are. I'm shaking and vibrating on my knees with this old man. My arms around this guy. My eyes are closed. The old man starts praying. I have no idea what he's praying. Because in my head, I'm praying my rear end off. Because I got to get sober today. Not next month. Not six months down. No, 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 no. It's got to, we got to make it work today. So I guess there was some silence after he quit praying. He nudges me. He's like, I need to hear what you're saying to God. And I said something like this. I said, God, I've tried to get sober since 1988. And I'm scared and I don't want to die drunk. I need your help. Please give me the willingness to do whatever I got to do to get what's in this book. Amen. And he said, stand up. And I 
thought I'd screwed up because we didn't read it out of the book. I stood up, and he hugged me, and he said, you just did the third step prayer. What did I do? I voiced it without reservation. There was no lurking notion. I had an honest and complete surrender. And then I had a sincere and honest plea for help. And we walked, went back into his office that day. He sat me down and gave me instructions for step four, and he gave me one week to complete it or else. And every day when I called him, whatever dribble that I had to talk to him during that day when I would call to check in, it would always come back to, where are you at on your four-step? Well, I'm done with my resentments. I'm working on my fears. Great. Call me when you're done. Click. I mean, a week is a week for the old man. And the week is up. My four-step is done. We're at the Saturday night meeting. I said, hey, I completed my four-step. He said, be at my house tomorrow at noon. And that, that day, whatever, how many days, 12 days sober, I got to see the truth about me. I got to do here my fifth step or do my fifth step and find out the truth about me. I who think so highly of myself and of my skills and abilities ain't all that. <laughs> I lie, cheat, con, steal, manipulate. I'll do whatever I got to do to get my way. And if I got to be real, real nice and pay you a compliment, I can do that. And if that don't work, F you. Because I'm going to get what I need to get. And look at all the damage that I've created. Look at all the people that I harm, people that aren't even alcoholic. Alcoholics kill people that ain't even alcoholics. Kidding, huh? And I got to see the truth about me. And it was a pretty humbling experience. And I got home, and I was quiet for the hour. I had to call him back on an issue, and he laughed and said, don't do that anymore. <laughs> um, but it, 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 it just clicked, right? And I had, I had that little job, and I went my life just changed. I made my first amends to my boss that next day. So in 12 days sober, I'd gone through the steps. My life changed. I had my first guy to sponsor when I was like 27, 28 days sober. I called Cliff. I said, this guy at Homer Bound asked me to help him. You didn't tell him no, did you? Well, no, but I'm like brand new. Jeez, JK, read the book. That's why they wrote it. Can't screw it up. And I mean, back then, and you know, and so when I was there on Fridays with Myers, so I like, I just cut my teeth in my new sobriety, listen to Myers every Friday, you know, so that's the way we did it, right? And our group started to grow, and I got to, you know, the, the biggest joys in my life, and I could tell you story after story after story about stuff in my life, but the cool thing in my life is seeing the guys that I sponsor, their lives. That's the best thing in my life, Right? is to see little, you know, and I usually don't, I mean, there's, I usually don't sponsor, like, uh, disco drunks, <laughs> I guess it's a nice way, <laughs> I don't, so I, the, the guys that typically that I sponsor, if you, if you look at the guy, if we lined up, like, all the guys that I sponsor from all over everywhere, it's like murderer's row, right, <laughs> I mean, the dudes that I sponsor are like the dregs of society. Like, they, and you look at them today, and they are like little sunbeams for the power. You know what I'm saying? But it's, it's, a, it's amazing. But that's the best thing in my life is to see those men who are just like me, who are just like Bill, and who all that, see those men recover and see them regain their places and their families in their children's lives, and in their work lives, and see them touch other people, right? So we do all that stuff, and primary purpose keeps growing and growing, and we get to travel, I get to travel a lot. It's all, man, it's all hip, slick, and cool. It's cool, cool, cool. Then COVID hits. COVID. I chaired the last meeting at primary purpose before we shut down 15 weeks to, what, kill your soul? Is that what it was? Oh, flatten the curve. I'm sorry. <laughs> So I chaired that meeting, and so we're all remote. We're all getting sucked into the fear, and Dallas is nuts. I don't know how y'all were out here in West Texas. Probably a lot more sane, but Dallas was nuts, man. Mass Nazis everywhere. Cops are hassling if you're gathered in groups. and It's just ridiculous. But there's no meetings. And I had one of my guys, one of my guys spun out. So it was like in the 1st of May, right? No face-to-faces are going on in Dallas, right? 
our steering committee thought, hey, let's do the Zoom stuff. So we're, I'm, I'm chairing that Zoom Tuesday thing. But that ain't my groove, you know? And, 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 and so I got one of my guys twisted off, and I'm talking to one of my other guys, and he's, in a, he's, been, he's a musician. He's a great musician. Throat off is all get out. And um, he's wanting us to hook up and everything. I'm talking to my sponsor. My sponsor now is Jimmy Jack Bailey up in Kansas. And um, I'm talking to Jimmy Jack. Jimmy Jack lives in a small farming community. And since the beginning of like March of our February when COVID started to hit and like that first week of May, they had like seven suicides in that little town. Alcoholics and a couple of alcoholics and, and drug addicts, but a couple of them were old isolated farmers, financial ruin. They pulled the plug. You know, I got people screaming at me in Dallas, like, like, we need a meeting, we need to figure it out and everything. So I'm talking to Colin and I'm talking to Mark and, and then we thought, well, hey, let's meet at this park on Sunday afternoon at five o'clock, right? And I don't know why I didn't think of this earlier, so I hung up the phone with Schaefer, so we got it all set and I was like, wait a second, I know everybody. Dialing, I mean, I'm walking around my backyard pacing and I'm dialing dudes from the group. So, hey, check it out. Me and Schaefer and Colin are meeting at Glencoe Park Sunday night, 5 o'clock. Bring a lawn chair, bring water. We'll be like socially distancing crap so the man don't hassle us. No format. We're just going to meet, get some eyeball time. And like 15 guys showed up. It was friggin' awesome. We had a little prayer. Didn't even have an AA meeting. We're just, we're just brothers talking to each other, right? And then because I'm like the old timer there, somebody said something about the traditions or whatever. And I told them how we used to do it at primary purpose on Thursday. And I'm like, well, hey, why don't we do this meeting again and we'll do it like in that format? I'm like, cool. So I drive back to Plano where I live. As I'm driving back, I get an epiphany. So I get on the computer and I do like a Jerry Maguire memo <laughs> to all the people that just met with me. And I said, we're going to call this Gorilla Pop-Up AA. And we're going to meet in parks around town and it is going to be the shit. You know what I mean? And so we started meeting and we had big books and, and, and 12 and 12s, and we started meeting in that May, and we went through all, through all the summer, 110 degree weather, meeting in that damn park, going through the big book, going through the 12 and 12, stepping tradition, all through the summer, all through the fall, got through winter, that was a little sketchy, <laughs> that was a little sketchy, but we're doing it all outside, uh, we're trying to figure out a place to place to meet. I go meet with this church in far north Dallas. It's supposed to be a 30-minute meeting. Turn it to a little two-hour meeting. He starts showing me this big old auditorium like this, this like this, this meeting hall, whatever, like a conference room thing. And after this two-hour meeting, I tell him all these cliff stories and everything. We pray and do all this stuff. And as I'm sitting there, he's like, okay, well, so this is where you guys can meet. So when do you want to start? And I was like, whoa, whoa, hey, hey, wait, wait. We hadn't even talked about like rent and all this stuff. He's like, oh, rent? You pay rent? He goes, oh, no, no, no. This ain't my house. This is the Lord's house. This is to serve his kids. And I can see that what you and your gorilla pop-up people do is y'all serve God's kids too. So there'll be no rent in this church. And I had to go. I got home and I called everybody in gorilla pop-up, went through the whole story, all that thing. We all met with the pastor a few days later. We had our inaugural night. That next thing, bam, new group. And it's friggin' awesome. I got I got a dude that we got, I call him my gorilla papa baby. I think he went to one primary purpose meeting and then we shut down. So he got sober in the park with us. So he's my gorilla papa baby. We got three or four of those guys now. We, I'm working in Midland all the time now, so I miss our Wednesday night meetings, but we're doing 30, 35, 40 people every week, and we still all have our wind-up commitments. I've been doing the 24-hour club on Sunday nights at 6 o'clock for 22 years now, every Sunday. Rain, sleet, shine, snow, Super Bowl. I have, I have missed 21, the first half of 21 Super Bowls in a row. that meeting still, hey, it was the first year I started it, right? I'm newly sober, and I asked Cliff, I said, hey, Salvation Army, because my buddies were carrying the message over there, like, they're canceling their meeting for the Super Bowl. Do you think the 24-hour club meeting will cancel theirs on, for the Sunday night meeting? He goes, I don't know, but you'll be there. 
<laughs> so, so that's what we do. And you know, in my life changed. You know, when it, I'll wrap it up with this. So, I talk about my saint and mama a lot, and I put them through hell. My family hit their all-time lows as a family because of my drinking, and they don't drink. And there was just countless times when I suckered them back in only to kick them in the teeth one more time. And I took money from my mama's slender purse. I took money from her business. I broke her heart. And she'll tell you, she goes, you're my, she goes, she'll say, John Kelly's my baby. We grew up together. She had him when she was real, real young. And I put her through hell. So I'm sober. She's the, one of the big ones on my amends list. I'm sober for a while. I'm making out these low-hanging fruit things. I'm talking to my mom all the time. She hasn't seen me yet. So I don't know how many, two, three, four, five weeks sober, whatever. I'm praying about it. I'm going through all this stuff. My life's changing, all this stuff. And I'm sitting down with Cliff, and I'm like, I've got to make this with my mom. And we went over it in detail again, one-on-one. -on -one, and we went over it, and he, we prayed about it. And he said, make the appointment called her up and we made an appointment for that Saturday morning so I drove up to Gainesville and I, I'm praying the whole way and I get there and she's sitting on the front porch drinking some coffee and I say another little prayer and I ease into the curb there and I get out of the car and as I'm walking by the car she's walking up the sidewalk and she's crying and I'm thinking did I run over the dog you know but I walk up to her and she's crying and I'm not a tough guy so of course I start crying I'm like, why are you crying? And she says, because you're different. She goes, you're changed. As soon as I saw your head pop out of the car, I saw you're different. She held my hand, and we went up on the front porch, and I started to make this amends, and I started going through the amends, and she's crying, and she said, stop, stop. You don't owe me anything. Now, evil John Kelly's like, whew, that's a, she could have said, you owe me 380 grand. I'm like, wow. But she said, you don't owe me anything. She said, but then she gives me the mother of all amends. She goes, I don't know what you cats are doing in Dallas at Primary Purpose, but whatever it is, I want you to keep doing it because it makes me happy. So if my saint and mama lives to be 100 years old, I better be 83 and a half, kicking butt, taking names, because it makes her happy. You know, in the interim, I get married, and I have the, my lovely kid over here, and he's a sharp kid, and I'm doing my, I've kept him alive for 13 years so far, so we've come a long way. So we've come a long way, and, and you know, and, I, and my heart goes out to anybody who's out there struggling, so let's, let's, let's do a little math here. So the third step prayer I talked about earlier is on page 63. At the bottom of page Eight, uh, page 84, here's some good promises, and we'll close it with this. It says, then we've ceased fighting thing, anything or anyone, even alcohol, for this time sanity will have returned. So the hope of step two has come true. You dig? And it says, if tempted, we recoil, or seldom be interested in liquor, if tempted, we recoil from as it were a hot flame. We react sanely and normally, and we will find that this has happened automatically. I didn't do it. I just took the steps. This is happening in my life. We'll see that our new attitude toward liquor has been given us without any thought or effort on our part. It just comes. That is the miracle of it. Again, I didn't do it. And it says we're not fighting it, neither are we avoiding temptation. Treatment centers 1 through 5 are talking to me about trigger lists. They're talking about avoiding temptation. Or, you know, we're not fighting it, nor are we avoiding You dig? So let's think about some, like, trigger lists. See, I go anywhere on God's green earth. I don't think about drinking. I don't think about not drinking. It does not exist. It's been removed. In the big book, they talk to you about Bill going into a cafe to use the telephone and ends up drunk. Cafes and telephones on his trigger list. Jim, the car salesman, stops off at a roadside cafe for sandwiches and milk and ends up drunk. Sandwiches and milk on his trigger list. And then the coup de gras, Fred the accountant, 
at the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon, crosses the threshold of a dining room and ends up drunk. Doorways <laughs> on his, Fred, I don't know, buddy, stay inside or outside, but don't go through that door. Page 63, I do a third step prayer. Page 84 and 85, where I just left off, I'm a recovered member of Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't think about drinking. I don't think about not drinking. It doesn't exist. It's been removed. 21 pages will get you from the gutter to recovery. Is your life worth doing 21 pages worth of work? That's it. That's it. It ain't rocket science. And if a dude from the gutter can get sober, like me, anyone can get sober. Trust me. I wish you all the best. I love you all.